0: at loveisrael.org. That's one word loveisrael.org. Now, here's Baruch with today's lesson.
1: There's no question that John, in this his first epistle, he is writing to those who want to live a holy life, who want to behave righteously, who want to demonstrate the truth of God, who want to have a testimony that is praiseworthy. So my question to you is this, does that describe you? Do you want such a life? If you are a true believer, these things are going to be of the utmost importance to you. With that said, let's open up our Bibles to John's first epistle and chapter 5. Now, we began that fifth epistle last week. We did the first 12 verses, and now we're going to focus in on verses 13 through the end of this epistle. And we're going to see that John is going to give us some very important information so that we can live, and hear this, an effective life. And we're going to learn, in order to have an effective life before God, we have to have An effective prayer life. Let's begin. Look with me to 1 John chapter five, and that 13th verse. We read here. These things I have written to you. Now, the first question we have to deal with is, who is he writing to? And it's very specific here in this verse, whom he is addressing. And we're going to see that he says this same phrase two times. Now, there's a slight difference in in the term believing that we'll come across in a moment when we look at it the second time. But we're going to see that John is writing here to you, the ones who are believing, and here's the key, in the name of the Son of God. That's what is consistent. He's writing to those who are believing in whom? In the Son of God. Now, we saw last week how important it was to John that we had a right understanding of the identity of Yeshua. In fact, nothing happens spiritually, positively speaking, until one knows the identity of Yeshua. Now, I realize that that many people struggle with such a statement, that unless one believes in the divinity of Yeshua, knowing that, that Jesus is truly the divine Son of God, if you don't believe that, you can't be saved. Why? Because you don't know who he is. You don't know the identity. And you can't believe in one that you really don't know, that you're confused about, or worse, that you're denying the truth about. So he writes here, these things I have written to you, to whom? The ones who are believing in the name of the Son of God. Now, name is a very important concept biblically. Name, of course, is related to identity, but also character. So we need to know the identity of the Son of God, his name, Yeshua, but also his character and that his character is holy and righteous and good and perfect and holy, just like his father. Because as we saw, God the Father and God the Son are one. And if we deny that, we are denying the gospel. Now, Messiah, being the son of God, and I wanna always state this, we need to affirm that he is the eternal son of God. There was never a time that Messiah did not exist. He was always in the past. Before time began, just like God his father was, so was he. He is now and he will ever for be. Again, he is the eternal son of God, and it's when we know who this eternal Son of God is, we know Him by name, His character, and His identity. It says that there's an outcome of that, there's a benefit of that, and what is that? Just keep reading. In order that you should know that you have eternal life. I love that that promise. When you know who the Son of God is by name. Not just that there's a Messiah, not just that God one day will send a Savior into this world, but when you know the name of Messiah, whether you address Him in Hebrew, Yeshua, in Greek, Iesus, in English, Jesus, in Spanish, uh, jesus whatever you say in your language is acceptable. But realize, once you know him and you believe in the name of the Son of God, this benefit is this. He says that that you shall know that you have eternal life in order that you believe in the name of the Son of God now we have eternal life and that eternal life let's talk a moment about this word eternal eternal life does not just speak about life without end, life everlasting it is that so i'm not saying it's not everlasting life life without end it obviously is but it's just not life without end. there's a quality of life when it says eternal life that word eternal is an adjective that describes the kingdom. So we have everlasting kingdom life, that quality. And just think about this. We're going to be for eternity with the presence of Almighty God. And the light of that kingdom is going to be the glory of God, to be with him in the midst of his glory enjoying his promises, his eternal blessings. What a wonderful and sure expectation that we have. And it all comes and it only comes by us knowing Messiah, knowing him by name, and of course receiving him as our Savior, believing in what he did when he laid down his life and when he shed his blood, nearly nearly 2,000 years ago upon, upon that, that tree. So again, in order that you know that you have eternal life and that you should believe in the name of the Son of God. Now, when it says this, it changes this word belief. It is written grammatically a little bit different. That tells us we should believe. Literally, it says that you should believe. And why the change? The change is to tell us there's the benefit from believing in the Son of God, knowing him by name, verse 14. Now, what is the benefit? Well, he's gonna tell us in this next verse, verse 14. And this is the confidence which we have with him. Now, I mentioned and wanted to emphasize this last phrase that I read, with him. Because the word with, when it speaks about an individual being with God, it it hints towards redemption. Now, why do I say that? Well, we all know from from a biblical prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7, that Messiah, even though his name is Yeshua, meaning Savior, that he gives us salvation, he's also called prophetically by by the name Emmanuel. And we all know Emmanuel means God with us. And this concept of with speaks about redemption. See, I can only be with God in his presence, being with him in his kingdom because of Redemption, until I experience the redemption that only comes through the blood of Messiah, until I experience that, the Holy Spirit won't be with me. But having been redeemed by the blood of Messiah instantly, the moment I believe, the Holy Spirit enters in, he dwells within me, and therefore he's with me and I have that relationship with God. So he writes here, verse 15, verse 14, and this is the confidence which we have with him. And what is that confidence? That if we ask anything, and notice this next expression. See, so many times people forget this. They say, you know, if we ask anything in his name, he will grant it. But what does it say here? That if anything, we ask, here it is, according to his will. Now, I would highlight that, underline that, memorize that, because it is so significant. Here's what a, a spiritually immature believer does. They kind of negotiate with God. They petition God, God, will you please... God, they want to negotiate with God. God, do this for me. And in essence, their prayer life becomes ordering God on what to do. That they get what they want, their desires. That's not spirituality. That is idolatry. Yes, you are using the right name for God, but it is an idolatrous attitude. The same thing that brings one to idolatry, brought you to that moment of prayer and here's what's so disastrous and that is oftentimes people are being being convinced to accept messiah because he's going to do what we want he's going to solve our problems he's going to give us what we desire nowhere does the bible say that no we need to to have confidence that whatever we ask according to his will that's the big takeaway. So let me ask you, if, if you keep a prayer journal, and I hope you do, if we were to open that up, when was the last time that you prayed, God, teach me your will. Reveal to me what your will is for this situation. Why? Because I wanna agree with you. I want to obey you. I want your will to be manifested in my life, in this situation, in, in this event that's that's taking place that's what faith is that's what one who really knows the character the name the character of yeshua is going to be committed to so once more and this is the confidence which we have with him that if anything we ask according to his will he hears us Now, the implication is this, when we ask something that's according to our will, he's not listening. Now, God knows everything he hears, but he is not listening to response. He is not going to grant us that. God is going to give us good things. Now, God, although he's sovereign, absolutely sovereign, God has created this world with an element known as free will. And if I'm stubborn and I'm speaking about myself, I tend to be, and sometimes I get it in my mind, I want this, this, this. I have this coming to me or what, and I pursue it, and I get it, even though it's not God's will. This does not attack his sovereignty. God allows us to do foolish things. The Spirit of God tells me, don't do this, This isn't right. This isn't going to end. Well, you're not going to like this. This is not going to have a good result. But, But being stubborn, being prideful, we all tend to do that. Behave this way at times. And then we learn, boy, this wasn't good. This wasn't satisfying. This didn't bring me joy. This has caused me greater problems. And therefore, we mature. So if we're stubborn, sometimes that that stubbornness, God allows us to get it in order for it to be a teaching moment for us. God can use all things for his purpose. But we're going to see that it's always best when we agree and pray according to his will. Why? When we do, he hears us. Verse 15. Now, pay attention to this 15th verse. Because he says, and since we know that he hears us, since we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have those petitions, those requesting those things that we have asked for, why? Those things, those petitions which we have asked from him. Now, I'm going to share with you that, that for me, when I pray not according to his will, I have no assurance. I am convicted inwardly. God's not listening to this. God, God's not impressed by this. God's not going to respond to this. This is displeasing. I am grieving the spirit of God. So he tells us in this passage of Scripture. Look again at verse 15. And since we know, this is an, uh, an experiential no, our, our inward being is going to testify to this. And since we know that he hears us, we know when he hears us and he does not. Whatever we ask, we know that we have the, the request which we've asked from him. Now, that is the one who prays effectively. Praying according to the will of God. We know that he hears and we know that we're going to receive in his time those things that we ask from him. But then it goes on. Look now to verse 16. If anyone should see his brother, now, we're going into a different area, and let me just simply say, when we come to verses 16 and 17, these verses give rise to much speculation. And I don't want to do this. I want to share with you what I know to be true. Now, there are different opinions, different interpretations in regard to this, these two things that he's going to be speaking of in the next few verses and that is he's talking about sin. We'll see that in a moment. He's speaking about a sin unto death and a sin that is not unto death. What does that mean? That's the key question. And as I shared, there's many different thoughts, many different opinions, many different interpretations. What I want to do is share with you what we can be assured of in regard to this. Can it have perhaps a, a additional application? May it be referring to something slightly different? It might be, but let's deal with what we can know. Let's read again the beginning of verse 16. If anyone should see his brother sinning. But notice what it says. A sin not unto death. Now, what is that? what are we speaking about here? Because there's a sin not unto death, and we're going to see a sin that is to death. What are we speaking about? Well, let's get something clear. For a believer, there is no sin that's unto death, meaning if death is Separation from God eternally, being cast in ultimately to that lake that burns in fire, that that experience of eternal judgment for a believer. There is not a sin unto death. Why? He has promised to forgive us of all of our sins and to remember them no more. Now that's from an eternal standpoint. So if we read this carefully, once more, verse 16 if anyone should see his brother sinning a sin not unto death now brother if we interpret this to be a fellow believer and i see someone sinning a sin not unto death what can i do well a believer wouldn't sin a sin unto death and therefore i can pray And what should I be praying? That that brother repents. And and that what happens? He finds life. What life? A godly life now living that he repents and he embraces the will of God. That's why the previous verse, it talks about praying according to God's will, that we live the life according to God's will. That's what we want. And when we don't want God's will, where are we moving in? sin. And that sin is going to bring about destruction. So what it says here, let's take the whole verse. If, if someone sees his brother sinning, a sin not unto death, what should he do? He should ask, this is the same word we saw about asking in prayer. According to God's will, we should ask And it says, and he will give, that's God, he will give to him life to the ones who are sinning, not unto death. Now, what is the sin unto death? Well, there's only one that I know, and we're not talking about the unpardonable sin. A sin unto death is not believing the gospel. Now this is what these two verses, and we'll deal with both of them in a moment in their entirety, but this is what it's saying. If there's a brother or a sister, a fellow believer, in sin, ask God that God would move in his life, restore him to to godliness. It's not that he would save him again, that he, not that, that's not anything that is biblically based but that this one would simply repent and embrace this godly life, the will of God, that he would be committed to the purposes of God. For a believer, we can pray for that. But notice what he says. Keep reading. We're ready now for for verse, verse 16, the second part. He says, There is a sin to death. What is that sin that brings eternal damnation? Not believing in the gospel. So if someone does not believe in the gospel, he says here, there is a sin unto death. Not concerning this, not concerning that one, I say, in order that you should ask, why? Well, you cannot pray and ask God for this non-believer that he begins living And being restored to God's will why he can't be it's impossible because this lack of faith this rejection of the gospel means that he doesn't have that kingdom life he can't be restored to it because he never was part of it he needs to be saved so can I ask God God I pray that this one would come to faith of course you could pray for that that this one repents of his sin and receives the gospel Of course you can pray for for such uh, an event for a non-believer. But you can't pray for that non-believer to have life being, being restored to him because he never had it. He was never part of God's family. So this is what he's talking about. This one cannot embrace kingdom life. He can't turn and embrace that because he first has to be saved. So look again at this entire two verses where he says, going back to verse 16, if anyone should see his brother sinning, a sin not unto death, meaning what? This one has faith. He's not exercising faith, but he has faith. He's in disobedience right now. So what should we do? That he should ask, And that he, meaning God, will give to him life. Meaning that God would, we're asking that God gets him back on the right track, on the kingdom pursuits, in the will of God. Why? Because such ones have not done a sin unto death. And then he tells us there is a sin unto death. What is that sin unto death? Not receiving the gospel. Concerning... Such a sin, he says, not concerning that sin of unbelief. I, I, I say that you should ask, ask what? For God's will to be in his life. You can't because first he's got to be saved. If he is a non-believer, God's will is an impossibility for him. Nothing can change him. He can't experience life until first he receives the gospel. So the sin unto death is unbelief and then he says now let's move on to verse 17 all unrighteousness is sin and there is a sin not unto death what is that sin not unto death it's only for for believers that that we who are saved by god's grace when we sin although it's shameful, it's disobedience, our sins don't keep us out of heaven. Our sins do not keep us from never being able to express kingdom life. That's what he's saying here. Now, notice what he says in the next verse to help strengthen what we've just learned. He says in verse 18, We know that all, meaning everyone, who has been begotten from God, Now it's talking about one who has been saved, regenerated. When they are in that state of regeneration and they're exemplifying it, they are living according to this new life that they have. In this new life, when they're submitting to it, it says here that that this one will not sin. He does not sin. But the one who has been, been born again, begotten from God, what does he do? He keeps himself. Now, what's he talking about here? The norm. We always have to pay attention to the grammar. What we see here is that the author is speaking about what should be the normal condition of a believer. What do we do? Because of this regeneration, this kingdom life that's come into us. We're not going to be interested in sin. But we learned previously if we should sin, and that should be the exception to the rule. If we should sin, praise God for someone to pray to God that that God moves and he restores me back to what? Not back to salvation. We are saved. Sinners are saved. And their sin doesn't undo that. See, if that was a problem, then how much sin undoes it? How much is enough or too much in order that causes me to have to be saved again and then saved again and then saved again, perhaps? That is no assurance. No, what he's talking about here is this, that if there's a believer that should, and this is the exception, sin Let's pray that this one repents and once again gets on that kingdom character life. But for the one who is in a sin unto death, not believing, rejecting the gospel, you can't pray that that happens to him. It's an impossibility until he receives the gospel. And then, as I said, to to clarify this, notice what he says, verse 18. We know that everyone, who has been begotten, meaning born again, been regenerated, this one is from God, and, and in that state, he, he's not going to sin. Now we've learned, if he should, it's an exception. It's not normal, it is not in keeping with the character, his new character, which is what? The same character of Messiah, he's supposed to live like Messiah. That's why the scripture says our life is hidden in Messiah and only when he appears will our life be manifested. So we know that everyone who has been begotten, out of God, from God, does not sin. This is not, and remember the the tense. When he says does not sin, it does not mean he never sins, but it means sin is not his character. Sin is not what consistently he is embracing. It goes on to say, but the one who is begotten from God, what do we do? We keep, it says, this one, he keeps himself. And the evil, the evil one does not touch him. What a wonderful statement. Now here again, he's speaking about the norm, what it should be. So when I am in God's will, Satan, he, he may attack, but he has no authority over me when I'm in God's will. He might move, he can 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 try to bring fear and cause me to, to move away, but as long as I'm in God's will, he cannot harm me, he cannot touch me. That's why there's no safer place to be than in God's will. And when we're not in God's will, this gives authority over us to Satan. So what a promise. He says, and the evil one does not touch him. Verse 19, we know that from God we are. What a wonderful promise. We know that from God we are. And the whole world in evil lies. And that's literally what it says. I know a lot of different English, and I'm sure other languages translated differently, but what it literally says is this. We know that from God we are, and the whole world in evil lies. So we don't want a connection to the world. That's why he says earlier on in this first epistle, if someone's a friend of the world, this one is an enemy of of god this world is an evil place god's going to destroy it his judgment's coming in order for the kingdom of god to be established so he's telling us we don't want to be part of the world we don't want to live according to the worldly way that's sin it's evil we want the will of god verse verse 20 but we know that the son of god Now, he's speaking here about what we have been promised. We know that the Son of God comes, and he has given to us. So the Son of God has has been manifested. He has come, and he has given to us. Notice this next word. It is a word that means a mindset, a perspective, a perspective. So we know that Messiah has come, and he has given, we have been, and he has given to us a mind that we should know truth. What a wonderful thing. Because Messiah has come, he has given us a mindset, a perspective where we know truth. And we are in truth. Now, what does that mean to be in truth? In his son. Messiah Yeshua. Now, what it says here is this. Notice the emphasis, being in truth. When I'm not in truth, I'm in sin. When I'm not in truth, I'm outside of God's will. These things are exceptions to the norm for a believer. That's why it says here, we're from God, meaning we have been born again. Everyone who's been begotten by God is from him. And he says, we have been given this new mindset in order that we know the truth. And we are in the truth. What does that mean? In his son, Messiah Yeshua. This is the truth of God. This one, or literally it says, and this one is God's truth truly God, or this one is truly God would be a better way of translating. This one is truly God and an eternal life. So this one is, is the true God and knowing that gives us kingdom life, eternal life. Now he said three times that knowing his son and he's spoken about his son more than three times. But knowing his son produces eternal life. There's no other way to have eternal life but but by knowing the true God, Yeshua. And then he concludes and tells us something. He says, children flee, you flee from idols, amen. Now, he ends this this epistle rather abruptly. You flee from idols. Now, who's he talking to? Believers, he says, children. This is how he identifies his audience. Believers in Messiah, he calls them children. And this last part is so, so significant because he tells us, if you are not in truth, Where are you? Idolatry. Just that simple. You are either going to be in truth or practicing a form of idolatry. And he says, flee from this because he knows. There is that tendency. Israel had that tendency, and and the church does as well, to get into this idolatrous mindset, which is always based upon me wanting what I want, and begin pursuing and doing the things to get what I want. That's idolatry. It leads into that idolatrous mentality. And it's only when I'm in Him, in the true God, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus Christ, then and only then when I'm in Him, I'm experiencing the kingdom life. Now, the last thing I want to say is this. There is a difference, a big difference, and this really goes to the foundation of understanding what he's talked about. There's a big difference between having eternal life as a promise, and that promise is real and nothing's going to affect that. That's assured because of what Messiah has done. You are secured in that promise of eternal life the moment you receive the gospel. But there's a big difference between having that promise of eternal life and demonstrating eternal life. And when we are not demonstrating eternal life, it's because we're not operating in the knowledge that we supposedly have of who the Son of God is. We're not behaving according to his will, and we're not operating in the truth. Because when we're in the truth, We're in, we're behaving, we're demonstrating that kingdom life. And this is what John wants us to experience. This is what John wants us to demonstrate. So what he's saying is this. When I am in God's will, praying according to his will, I am going to be demonstrating publicly the fact that I have been begotten from God, that I've been regenerated, that I am a kingdom citizen. And I'm not going to be in sin. But when I choose not to put the priority on God's will, when I want what I want, when I'm not walking in truth, when I'm not in him, then I'm going to do what? Be in sin. But praise God, that for a believer and only for a believer, we can be in sin, but that sin is not going to lead to death because we can ask, We can intercede and God is going to work to bring that person back to repentance. That that person begins to live once more in accordance with God's will. For the non-believer, that's an impossibility. He has to be saved first. Only for the believer can one be be renewed to that kingdom life demonstration. And I'm gonna close with this. What God wants. His, his followers, believers in Messiah, his disciples to do, is to demonstrate kingdom life and not sinfulness. Well, I'll close with that. Shalom from Israel.
0: Well, we hope you will benefit from today's message and share it with others. Please plan to join us each week at this time and on this channel for our broadcast of LoveIsrael.org. Again, to find out more about us,